Museum of the Moving Image welcomes you to the Pinewood Dialogues Online, an archive of conversations with innovative creative figures in film, television, and digital media. Visit Museum of the Moving Image in New York City or online at www.movingimage.us. Now, please welcome Mike Nichols. I'll tell you a very quick principle that I have come to believe is almost the most important principle of all of this. I worked with Dan Daly long ago. I directed him in the version of The Odd Couple, the play. And he told me that when he was at uh, MGM, when he was a big musical star at MGM, they got lessons and everything. They had movement and they had voice and they had speech and they had telephone. And I said, what did they teach you in telephone? And he said, in telephone you learn that if you're about to do a scene in which you get bad news, answer happy. And if you're going to do a scene in which you get good news, answer sad. (laughs) And that I think of that as the MGM telephone principle. (laughs) It's amazing how often it comes up. It comes up in almost every scene, namely that you don't know what's going to happen until it happens. And the harder you're running in the opposite direction when it happens, the more expressive and interesting and colorful it is when it happens. This skill to um, kind of find the core of a scene, to find exactly what it is that's structuring the whole scene, I'm, I'm sure a lot of your ability to do that grew out of your improvisational comedy work, your um, early work with the compass players and, of course, with Elaine May, uh, where you had to field suggestions from the audience and instantly come up with the scene. You know, you've often said that it wasn't just a question of acting funny or saying funny lines, but to, to define the kind of emotional undercurrent of the scene. One thing you've, you've been quoted as saying is that Elaine always says, when in doubt, seduce. Mm-hmm. That's always a good core for a scene um, or to have a fight. So I just, I'd like to know what you got out of, the, of your early work as a performer, as a comic performer. Well, when you're improvising comedy in front of an audience, you learn very fast uh, what you have to do to literally keep them in the room. And when in doubt seduce is indeed a, a useful principle. But most scenes are seductions or fights or there's another kind of scene which sort of has its genesis in, in the Chekhov scene in Cherry Orchard, in which his name may be Lopakhin and it may not, is going to propose to Varya, and everybody knows in the audience that he's going to propose, and he doesn't. She expects him to, and he doesn't. That was Chekhov's contribution to what a scene is. That's sort of the central modern scene that led to hundreds and hundreds of of grandchildren and great-grandchildren. The scene in which you set up that something is going to happen or might happen or that you hope that it'll happen and then it Mm -hmm. doesn't happen. If we're improvising, if this were an entertainment, if you say black, I have to say white. Because uh, that's the only way to get something going. And you learn that, and you learn various principles of that kind, and you learn 
to some extent to incorporate the audience in your head mm -hmm. so that when you're rehearsing a play or a picture, you learn to trust yourself to say, it's time to move on now, it's enough already, or I don't believe this, we have to do something here that I will believe. And the most interesting thing that I learned about audiences when Elaine and I were performers, we played all kinds of places. We played what they called sophisticated supper clubs. We did TV shows where like a lot of ladies lined up to see some TV show. They didn't care which one it was. <laughs> uh, and what was it? interesting was that the audiences were exactly the same. That the audience is the same. That all together we know everything and we see everything. We don't necessarily know what to call it. But when we're all together in the theater we know everything and we can hear each other thinking. When Elaine and I used to perform I felt that I could hear the audience thinking because 800 or 900 or 1,000 people thinking is a very strong thing. When I've directed a play and I come sometime during the run through the back of the theater, through the door, I instantly know how it's going. It doesn't have to do with laughter. You can hear it in the air. and. I can give you an example. It, it is something that actually happens. It's not mystical. You have a new record. It's a great song that you want to play for your friend, and you put it on, you say, wait a minute, listen to this, listen to this. And your friend is quietly listening, and you're not looking at your friend, but as you listen, it's not as good as it was. <laughs> <laughs> and then you say to yourself, wait, wait till we get to the good part. <laughs> And then you get to the good part, and it's still not very much. You're hearing your friend thinking, and it's moving you that little bit. Now, when you have a thousand people or a hundred people, this is very strong. And it's what's so exciting about teaching acting is that to hear that, to join that, is a very important part of the job. Jack Nicholson. Part of his genius is that he is friends with everyone on the set, 120 people, all the way back to the woman by the trailer who takes care of the wardrobe. They're all his friends. And he takes time with all of them. And he does numbers for the lottery with the makeup women, and they put in their numbers together. And so that when it comes time for him to act, they love him and they lift him mm. in a way that couldn't possibly happen if he was cut off behind the camera. And that's part of what an actor needs to know. And that's part of what I learned from people like Jack and Merrill, that the concentration and the connection to other people and this thing that we know more about than we've discussed this thing of knowing what other people are thinking and bringing them with you somewhere, saying, we, we're together now, we all know what we're thinking, we're all feeling something not so dissimilar, come with me, I'm going to show you someplace that I'd like to take you. And that 
is sort of the best part of what we do, and it's the best part of the rehearsal process. And if you don't join each other in that way, when you're preparing or when you're shooting, then everything veers off in different directions, and people look at the player or the movie, and they say, is there any place open where we can still eat? <laughs> in a way, then, the, um, actually, the big film crew becomes a replacement for the audience, the way you're describing it. I was wondering what it was like when you directed your first film, Virginia Woolf. You would come from directing theater. And um, you once said, in talking about your adaptation of Virginia Woolf, that as a theatrical event, the audience really became a character, that George and Martha, in their battling back and forth, were playing off the audience's reactions. The film version is, um, is a much more intimate experience, kind of quiet moments built in, and you didn't have the audience to work with in that way. So I'm, wonder I'm wondering what it was like in getting into film directing, how that was different. Well, it took me a long, long time to understand movies. It's funny, Orson Welles said that you can learn in one afternoon how to use the technical tools of movie making, which is true, it's not hard. But movies are very different from plays, and it took me, I would say, until carnal knowledge to understand what I thought I needed to understand about movies. And then it took me until Silkwood, which, by the way, included the seven-year period that I didn't make movies, which I also, something that I believe in now very strongly, is downtime, is time where you don't do anything. Not even think particularly. I don't think very much. <laughs> when I'm alone, I'm sort of like a dog. I, I, <laughs> I wait for somebody to come along, but I don't think by myself. I don't figure things out. And I've come to see that that's a, a kind of useful way to be. So that was like, you worked in TV work. before so. In TV? No, I think that's different, too. I didn't really work in... Producing is not working. <laughs> it's different. A comedy or a comedic play that is a battle is a battle for the audience. If I make a joke about you and, and you laugh, then I'm ahead. And then if you make a joke about me, then you've caught up. And that battle for the audience was the central, was the crucial element of the play, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Of course, it doesn't happen in the movie, which is why um, the movie is far more inner, and as you say, and, and in a weird way, romantic than the play. Perhaps not as exciting in that sort of boxing match way, but maybe more about their love, which is actually what animates both play and film. But in that case, the crew is not the audience. The crew is never right about how it's going. It's a very interesting thing about a movie. <laughs> Nobody is right about how it's going. There is no right. It goes the way it wants to go. All the director can do is sort of, it's like a snowball. You sort of throw things under it as it's rolling. <laughs> and what happens is that you, if you're doing it right, I think, you're not trying to control it nearly as much as I used to, for instance, in the days of Virginia Woolf and The Graduate. I wasn't very nice during them, and I was trying to control every aspect of them. 
And I think thereby missing what really is most wonderful about both making and seeing movies, which is that if it's alive, if it, it, there's a certain point when you're making a movie, if it is alive, when it jumps in your hand and you think, oh, look at this, it is alive and it, it wants to go somewhere too. And if you have extraordinary people like Merrill, you then follow it where it takes you. And that's the great, it's why it really is, in my view, the best thing you can do. It's more fun than anything because it's leading you on a journey. You prepare like crazy. You prepare and you prepare and you prepare and you prepare. And then you show up and you're still sort of mindless and you wait to see where it'll take you. And things like Virginia Woolf are not like that. And yet, when you put it all together... This is not true of anything else that we do. You put it all together and you run it all in a row. It's something different from what you put in. It becomes something else. And that's, I think, one of the reasons that we're so glued to movies, why they're so... This amazing thing that you have upstairs where there's like one and two second shots of hundreds, thousands of movies, and we know every one of them. As you see it, it's, it's all in there registered. And that, I think, has to do with this strange quality of a movie that... It's not only a story, it's instantly, two years later, three years later, four years later, it's about its time. It's about something that isn't here anymore, that we can learn from or be taken back to. It becomes a metaphor all on its own which isn't true of anything else that people make. And the great ones that survive, the ones that we're always, in some ways, always thinking about, in some ways, always quoting to each other, they have become almost completely metaphor because they were so strong and true to begin with, and they're now so far removed from where we are that we're looking at what we can't, we're not in touch enough in most of the things we read to apprehend them as pure metaphor. There is a quality, really, I think, to all of your films, and I think it's true more in your films than in other directors, that they do have a, almost a time capsule quality, that they really capture the kind of mood of the times. I mean, it's certainly true of The Graduate. I think it will be true of, of Working Girl if people want to know what the 80s were all about. Um, I think it'll have that kind of quality. Um, and Carnal Knowledge really captures the mood of that time. Well, I think it's a quality of movies. I think it's a quality of, most of all, of comedies of manners. If you, th if you think of the great masters of comedies of manners, like Preston Sturges, it's always so embroidered with the details of how people lived. It's always so specific. And at the same time, it's this bizarre, you-can't-take-it-with-you family. It's, it's people like you've never seen. They're all crazy. They're crazy in the way that a friend's family is crazy. When you go home with a friend, especially to some other place, some other part of the world, and if it's an animate family, that they seem to you crazy in a wonderful way. And that's what people like Sturgis can do, that it's both individual and specific about how things... I always think when I'm working that if you... 
It's very, very important to do something the way you remember it. If I get exactly the green cup, that kind of, you know, it's, all, it's translucent, it's a mug, and it has a handle. And if you hold up the light, you can see through it a little bit. We all know those cups, and that's the kind of cup that was in that kitchen with that linoleum when this happened to me. That if I get it right, you'll recognize it. And the odd thing is that that's what happens, that that's true. You have to get it right. And then everybody says, oh, yes. And it's, it's weird, but it's true. And when things represent their time, I think that's the reason, is that the filmmakers got it right for them. I would like to hear a little bit about how you work with your production designer. I mean, you've generally worked with Richard Silbert on most of your films. Um, you've also worked with Tony Walton and Patricia von Bonenstein. And also your cinematographers. You've worked with just a roster of the greatest cinematographers, Nestor Almendros, uh, Giuseppe Rotuno. So I'd just like to know a little bit about your relationship with those people. You really ask and, and partially answer the same questions that you do with the writer and the, and the actors that I was talking about. What happens and to whom does it happen? But also you, there are secrets. And you, you find physical secrets around which to organize the look. I mean, in The Graduate, it's no longer a secret because we went so far, you know, that we were concerned with glass, water, plastics, all the barriers between people, invisible in some cases, we, that we conceived Mrs. Robinson as the beast in the jungle. And she is indeed always in her jungle backyard. And mm -hmm. at one time, I was actually going to send an ape through, and then I, <laughs> <laughs> they talked me out of it. <laughs> and all her clothes are animals. They're leopards and zebras and tigers and... I don't even know if it was a good idea, but it gave us something to do. And, <laughs> and it, it, we, were, we organized the whole thing around these certain secrets that we had. And it, it does indeed give you something to do, and it, it hooks everything on in the story. There's a great, not a great story, the story that meant something to me about Kazan saying to Joe Milziner for a play called Flight into Egypt. Milzina said, what do you want? He said, I want a cul-de-sac with a long escape. <laughs> and that's, that's a good way to approach a set. That was the event that was being expressed in that play. They were caught, and there was the hope of escape, which you were looking at all the time. And that's the job of the designer and the director together to express the play or the picture in those ways that they haven't forbid anybody should tear apart as you're looking. I mean, mm -hmm. it would be a disaster if you went to see flight into Egypt and said, aha, look, dear, it's a cul-de-sac with a long escape. <laughs> but but we, we assume that these things work on us by other means. And a great production of anything, whatever medium it's in, physically expresses the events all the time. If there's a good example, which is when you're on a plane and the movie is on and you don't, like most of us, you don't put the earphones on. You can tell 
how good the movie is, just from looking. If it's just as in a soap opera on television, if it's people standing in the middle of the room talking to each other, it's not a good movie. But if it begins to pull you in by what it expresses physically, by where they're going and, and how the light is and, and what the size of the people is in relation to each other and where everybody is, then it's a movie, then it's expressing physically what's happening and the designers and the god knows the cameraman are your allies in that part of the journey the great cameramen have a, a strange non-verbal uh, comprehension i remember rotuna when we came to do carnal knowledge we went to vancouver for reasons that aren't worth going into and Rotuno didn't speak English very well at all. We all had dinner in some big Chinese restaurant before we started shooting. And Jack was doing his Jack things. And, and Artie Garfunkel was sitting with the light behind him in his golden halo. <laughs> and then everybody went on, and, and Rotuno and I were having a drink, and he said, I won't do his accent, but he said, he said it's interesting, you know. He said, Jack has the face of a saint. And Artie is, am I wrong, a little malicious. <laughs> and he didn't even know what they were saying during this long dinner. But he absolutely understood the people at that moment in their lives when they were already beginning to be the characters. And I trusted him so much. That, I mean, he understood so completely the things that we talked about in the rehearsal period and the pre-production, that he would come and say, no one has ever done this before since he would come and say, Mike, you know, I'd like to make this scene red. I'd say, sure, fine, that's fine. <laughs> have that red. He made one red, he made another yellow. And he knew so much of the secrets, and Surtees of the Graduate was the same. There are artists who, who know things by intuition that, that you don't have to talk about. Um, you seem to create an atmosphere where all the all the craftsmen can, um, the designer, editor, cameraman, um, can all chip in, and the lines get kind of blurred. I mean, I, I was surprised to read that there was a, a moment in the Graduate when um, Benjamin sees Mrs. Robinson naked for the first time when she walks in, and there are flashes of, from his point of view what he sees, and that suggestion didn't come from the editor or the cameraman, but from uh, Richard Silbert. He described that that was that was his idea. I didn't, I didn't even remember that. Mm -hmm. I, would have, I would have said it was the editor. But I, <laughs> I, I do know that uh, Elaine and I used to have a rule, write his might. And that's certainly my rule in, in a play or a picture. Wherever the idea comes from, you're, you're not the right one when you hear it, and that's the one you do. I don't care whose it is. It seems to me spiritually and otherwise a very important aspect of that rule is not to keep track. That if you keep track, you're not doing it right. And in fact, I had a... I didn't get along with Haskell Wexler on Virginia Woolf, and, and he did an interview afterward in which he said that he'd brought so much he felt to the film and that the idea of the taillight flashing, which people for some reason thought was so moving and evocative, that 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 had been his idea. And I thought, what a strange thing to do. 
it didn't seem to me the way you play to say this was my idea and that was his idea. In fact, that particular one had been my idea because you have to build a whole thing. Taillights won't flash unless the engine is running. And you can't run an engine in a movie because it wrecks the sound. So you have to anticipate those things. Mm -hmm. Nobody has that idea in the moment. But it, it's the keeping track that I find slightly nasty. And the idea that everybody throws in whatever happens and the director's job is to say, thanks, that's all great. This is the way we'll go because this is what happens next. And that's our real master. We're obligated to tell what happens and then have what happens after that and then what happens. And that whatever ideas will help you in telling that story, those are the right ones. The type of director you're describing sounds more like a theater director than a film director. We often have the picture of the film director as a visionary who has to express what's inside him, his personal vision on screen. Um, and what you're talking about is um, a director who will be more observational, kind of watch things happen. Well, that's the fault of the French, I think, that we think that. You know, <laughs> the movies are their scripts. You know, who are we kidding? You read the screenplay of a movie, and that's pretty much what you see when it's finished. Some scenes have been cut out. Some few things have been altered by the way it's photographed. Some things, small things usually, have been improvised. But a movie is its screenplay. The, the, the mystique of the director is uh, French silliness, I think. There, certainly there are directors. See, it's very confusing. I always think of it as like Larry Adler in the harmonica. There are Bergman and Fellini and maybe one or two others, Kurosawa. And when Larry Adler plays Bach on the harmonica, it's great, but it's still a harmonica. <laughs> and the rest of us are playing the harmonica. And all this sort of mystical art stuff that, mm -hmm. that uh, is encouraged by cinerasts and those magazines, mm -hmm. it just seems to me silliness. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about the frozen image. I once read an article on film that, was, that says that the, it's important to take advantage of the screen's primary characteristic, its flatness. <laughs> <laughs> Give me a break. <laughs> and I... I think that movies really are made by a group of people, and yes, the director does lead the way. I won't go on about this, but, mm -hmm. but even great icons like Orson Welles. We had, a, we had a sketch artist on Catch-22 who his greatest pride was that he was the sketch artist on Citizen Kane. And Mr. Welles was coming, and Mr. Welles was coming, and he was so excited. And, Finally, Mr. Wells came, and he walked right by this guy. And, and, and I said, Orson, this is so-and-so. He was your sketch artist on Citizen Kane. He said, I'd never use a sketch artist, and kept walking. Well, I know what he meant, but he did use a sketch artist. And there is no way one man can have done all the things that have to be done in a movie. It's enough. It's enough that you're the boss. You don't have to have done it all or say that you've done it all. It's not to, to totally 
disappear Herman Mankiewicz <laughs> is not necessary. He wrote the goddamn thing. I just want to read this, because this is a, a description that you once gave, which kind of, it's very modest, of course, and, but it demystifies the, the process. Um, and it's very much what the, I think this museum is about. But somebody asked you what uh, making a movie is all about. You said, you shoot a picture, and good guys carry gigantic lamps for 14 hours at a time. Actors stand in cold water for three months, and then you cut it. And guys are ruining their eyes looking at the tiny code numbers in the film. And then it goes to the lab, and there's another month of saying, this is too green, and this is too blue. And then you dub, and you say, could you bring the door slam up a little bit? And could you bring down the footsteps? And when you're finally through, it's shown in a theater, and people see it, and they come out, and somebody says, is there any place open still where we can eat? <laughs> so, um, having read that, um, I did say it was modest before, because um, there was definitely a contribution that you make. And I think with your films, it comes out most in your work with actors. Um, at, the, at the Waldorf Theater night, every, every actor who got up was begging for work on your next film. Um, uh, to, to get specific about it, I, I was interested in talking about Jack Nicholson because he was in three of your films and gave three very different performances, very explosive performance in Carnal Knowledge, um, incredibly funny performance in The Fortune as a kind of Laurel and Hardy type character, and then a very, very natural performance in Heartburn where he just seemed to be himself. I just wonder what it's like in working with him and what the... You craft these different performances. Jack is is like no one. Jack is spiritually very advanced. Uh, he, <laughs> I mean that seriously as well as funny. He, he's an enormously intelligent man. He may be as intelligent as anyone I know. And he had, as some of you may know, because he says this in interviews, he had two mothers. I don't know if you know this story. Jack was. He was brought up by his mother and his sister in New Jersey. And as I say, he's told this story publicly, and it's important. His mother died, and then after a while, his sister died. He told me the story once when I said, God, you must have had a terrific mother. And he said, well, she was great. And she always said, you can do whatever you want, but just call and tell me you're okay, from the age he was 12 or something. After they both died, he found out that his sister had been his mother and his mother had been his grandmother. But he said it was okay because he loved them both and they loved him. So he had two. And it was great for him. It, it made him enormously confident and happy. Not always happy, but uh, guy living his life fully, experiencing his life, and a very, very loving person. It, to know him is really to love him deeply. And he's your friend wherever you are. And I mean, in, in Heartburn, you know, I fired an actor and I called Jack. And I said, are you free? Do you want to be in a picture? He said, if you need me, Nick, I'll be there tomorrow. <laughs> and that, that, you see, I, I guess I think that it's not an accident that Jack and Merrill are both the most intelligent people I know and the most charming to meet them is to be in love because they are so in the moment and they they have such control of what they want to express and they have such wonderful manners and their attention to you is so complete this is all part of being a great actor 
And it's interesting to see that the great actors, in fact, can do anything they want with you. And you can see it sometimes in children. There are children who can do anything they want. They can just walk right through a crowd and come up to you and say, hello, and you're theirs, and they can take you where they want. And there's some people who don't lose that. And that, I think, is what makes a great actor, what makes a great movie actor. Whatever people say about anybody is wrong after a week to ten days. <laughs> like, like saying, you know, that the thing about me is the work with actors. Or George Cukor, that he was a woman's director. It's always something that isn't right. You work with actors, it's all right in a movie, but it's bes relatively beside the point. You can't direct actors very much in a movie. Because if you tell them what to do, they'll be doing what you told them. And that's very uninteresting in a movie. What's interesting in a movie is something happening that nobody planned, that's happening for the first time, like this is happening for the first time. And for an actor to cause that, you can't say, now when you come in, it's too late, it's over. You can't tell him how to say things and what to do. You have to do other things so that it will happen for the first time. And in the end, what's important in a movie is only one thing, and that is what shapes things are and people are. You're just looking at shapes. The answer to your question, the answer that I'm laboring toward, is that it's the same instinct that leads you to certain actors as the one that leads you to certain writers, designers, directors, or photography. You, you ask any actor about any good movie director, what did he tell you? You know what they'll say, don't you? Nothing. <laughs> because they have to have the impression that there are no requirements that all they have to do is show up. Has your approach changed? Starting with Silkwood and the films after that, um, they seem to be very different in tone than your earlier films. There seems to be a, a, more, a more naturalistic style and even a more easygoing style on your part, like less of a desire to control every moment of the film and to kind of let things happen. It's exactly what happened. What happened is that I lost the whole thing for a long time. I hated shooting movies so much because there was so much pressure and the sense that it was gone and you, you couldn't get it back after today's shooting. You could never get that minute back. And I liked the preparation of a movie and I liked the post-production, I liked cutting, but I hated shooting. So I stopped. And then it was Merrill that brought me back, really. And it was both herself and her the experience of working with her, and oddly enough, the theme of Silkwood. They were all about death and resurrection. One of the things I think is that our process is death and resurrection in movies and plays, in that everything dies as you're doing it. Every rehearsal, you come into something, you say, this is hopeless, this is no good, I can't do this. You're not good either. It, it's not going to work. This won't work. And then you come up with the idea that saves that day. That's what rehearsing is. That never gets any better. You never get so good that that doesn't happen. And if you are that good that it doesn't happen, you're no good anymore. 
<laughs> so that that kind of resurrection with which we're dealing every day was what Silkwood was about and what happened to me working with Merrill. I was resurrected. And where I had previously driven myself crazy about figuring out how to shoot a scene, I now just showed up and shot it. I didn't think about it. And I discovered that all the things I like, having people in the right relationship and moving the camera and coming around, another way to see things like the way Indians look at things after they've passed them, to see them from the back and to see things from their point of view. All these things happen in a movie by themselves if you trust them in a certain way and if you have learned. And, and uh, Kurt Russell said, while we were shooting, so Kurt, he said, are you always this light on your feet? And I said, no, now I am. You know, because I, I experienced it too, but it took a long time. And the shots are better, by the way. The movies are technically much better than they were when I was beating the hell out of it. So you, you're more satisfied with your recent films, then, for that reason? Satisfied is not a word I mm -hmm. would use. But I, I like their ease and lightness, yes. Mm -hmm. I like the way they happen. You talked about getting a feeling about a film by being in the room, and I was just wondering what it was like watching these clips before, you know, seeing, seeing The Graduate again, um, what that felt like, and then... Well, that's, this work in that's not, that's an artifact, you know, mm -hmm. that's, that's part of something we all did together. And so it's not, it's not quite like watching, a clip is not watching a movie mm -hmm. and we're not like a movie audience. It's, it's different, but it's really saying, isn't it, remember what that was like. Oh, that was not so bad. Look at that. That was the 60s. <laughs> uh, but it's fun. It's most fun when you've forgotten it completely, mm -hmm. when I have. Like seeing the stuff with Elaine, I didn't. I don't remember anything about that. I don't remember doing it. <laughs> I just sort of see my son up there, and uh, that's fun. And seeing seeing your new film, seeing well, seeing it in this way has no meaning, of course, because you're not seeing it in context. But seeing it at a preview, which I just did recently, is is the most interesting thing there is because it's where you learn what it is and what you have to do next. Okay, I'd like to um, bring up the house lights now and we'll take your questions. Okay, we have one right down in front. I'd like to know, with the graduate, how did you come about using Simon and Garfunkel's music to blend with the action of the film? That's the, I believe in the found object especially in movies. I was rented a house in California when I was shooting it, and my brother, who was a doctor, sent me the Simon and Garfunkel album, and I used to brush my teeth and do my exercises and stuff with Simon Garfunkel on every morning. And we were shooting, about three or four weeks into shooting, I was brushing my teeth and so forth, and I said, oh, that's the score to the movie. <laughs> Several of your earlier films were widescreen or anamorphic productions. Uh, I've noticed in your more recent films you uh, decided to shoot films flat instead. Is this uh, basically a compromise to the problems of home video? No, although I'm very happy to see 
everything I shot instead of half of what I shot, <laughs> a random half. I think it, for me, it's part of this change in me that I, I was very conscious of composition and the golden third and all that stuff. And for that, the, the Panavision aspect ratio is a, is a very interesting one because it never says, just this face. Don't worry about any of the rest of it. Just look at this face. And of course, that's what 185 does do. And I like 185 because it seems to me that ideal movie has no visible technique at all. And it's all gone that there are no shots and no cuts and no montage. You're just watching life. As in Jean Renoir, as in now in Louis Malle, I, I think that's the highest form of movie. Louis Malle and Jean Renoir, you have no idea what they did. They didn't do anything as far as you can see. There's no shot where you say, wow, look at that. And you're not aware of the cuts. You're not aware of any technique at all. The, the idea of technique, surely, is for the events and the feelings and the story to burn it away. So there is no technique. And for that, I think 185 makes everything far less self-conscious and composed. That's why I like it. It's more half-assed. Another question on one of your films, The Day of the Dolphin. What did you think of the film and how was it working with George C. E. Scott? Well, it, it, what I thought of the film when... Then or now? Well, at the time, I thought this will be perfectly suitable to get me out of my obligation to Joseph E. Levine. <laughs> and I haven't seen it since. But some, sometime after I made it, I thought, I know why I... I picked, you know, Roman Polanski was going to make it, and then his great tragedy happened. And it was just sitting there, and I thought, what the hell? I've got to get out of this obligation to Levine. I'll do this. Roman sent me on, on the first day. You know, Day of the Dolphin was about dolphins learning to speak. And he, he sent me a jar of gefilte fish with a card that said, if only he could speak. <laughs> and I, what's the, what may be mildly interesting is that I thought about it since. I don't mind that I made Day of the Dolphin. It was the dream of a new friend that made me make Day of the Dolphin. I think that's a very interesting dream, that in the ocean there should be another friend for us. And the dream of a new friend is what has led to all these rather more successful movies, uh, like Star Wars, uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, E.T. What? Well, i tell you one thing. I taught in a rough school, bad ghetto kids, and we went to see that movie. Except the big film. Those kids that never knew anything about the environment or animals. And I was teaching a course on the environment, and they loved that movie. That's great. I'm, I think that I think it was an honorable impulse. Uh, <laughs> you were helping to finally get rid of the Hollywood cult, you know, through um, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf in 1966. So what are your thoughts about? 
about finally getting rid of the Hollywood Code. What do I think about having been part of getting rid of the Hollywood production code, the, the censorship of stuff? Oh, it's so complicated. It's hard to realize how recent that was and how the things that you couldn't say are amazing. You could barely say, damn, and how quickly it went when it went. <laughs> I think that Virginia Woolf, that my being there was just sort of an accident, that that was the power of Jack Warner and the Burtons and the importance of the, of the material and things were really getting ready to turn. It was really about the Catholic Legion of Decency at the time. That was the thing you had to pass. You had to get a good rating from them or you were really seriously hurt at the box office. They had a, a paper, they, it was some kind of organ where the Catholic diocese listed movies. And you, what your index, the Catholic index, and what you were allowed to see and what you were not allowed to see. And for some reason, that lost its force just at that particular time. I guess you could liken it to television. You know, what it really meant is that movies grew up as, as books had, again, very, very short time before that. Lady Chatterley case uh, and Ulysses were, what, 10 years before that. It's all very recent, but books Obviously, it had to happen first, and then movies grew up, and television probably won't <laughs> because of the nature of not being... I don't want it to either. I don't want my kids to come in while I'm asleep and turn on Channel 23. You know, that would... I, I worry about that too. So we'll let somebody else worry about television, but movies have to stay like this. Do you cast all your films, and what do you think of the, of the Michael Ovis way packaging? <laughs> Deals. Yes, to the first. I don't think there is a director who doesn't. It may be confusing when you see casting by. Uh, what really, what that means is that if you're looking for a, a type or really just a, an age range, a race, a number of characteristics, the casting people line up. Right now I'm, I'm working on a picture with Harrison Ford. And there's a very important black character, and there's a guy who, it's about a man who's shot in the head, and there's physical therapy. And his physical therapist becomes his whole life and saves him and becomes his friend. And I, I know and have seen scores of black actors, but I haven't seen them all. And then I have a casting agent who goes all over the country and sees things that I don't, that I can't see. They're in Chicago and they're in California and so forth. They give you, they line up a lot of people for you. But in the end, of course, you make the decision. What has changed about the way I've cast is that I used to just cast who I knew. And now I really want to see everybody before I cast. As far as the Michael Ovitz thing is concerned, like all these things that are written about, it's very rare, you know. I've made some jokes about the most powerful man in Hollywood at this dinner. I said, 
they're always, they even write about the most powerful agent in the Hollywood, and that, that always makes me think of a woman I knew who was voted the best-dressed woman in radio. <laughs> <laughs> Agents simply are not powerful. Yes, they go on Christmas vacations with studio heads, but... Yeah. Don't ever get caught up with wanting somebody and not being able to get it because you can't have them unless you have this person? Never. That's what I'm saying. Never. That can't happen. So you just say, oh, forget it, I won't, I'll go with somebody else? No, you can, have, you can cast who you want. And that, nobody ever says, there is no real Ovitz that is as powerful as the imaginary Ovitz that's written about. Yeah. There is no Ovitz of any kind, literal or figurative, who can say, you can't have David unless you take Fred, Arthur, and Jenny. That doesn't happen. It is possible what Ovitz does and what my agent Sam Cohn does and what, what some of the so-called powerful agents do sometimes is they call their own clients first. But most of the time, I mean, I have many friends writer. Edgar Doctorow is a Sam Cohn client. Tom Stoppard is now, through me, a Sam Cohn client. I get Tom Stoppard and Edgar Doctorow together, but I'm not working for Sam Cohn. I think Tom Stoppard would be the best one to adapt Doctorow's book. 98% of the time, it's real people thinking about the work, like in the case of the thing I've just mentioned. That the, the Ovitz thing you're thinking of, because it is written about all the time, I think it happened once in that movie about fire, lawyer, legal eagles, it, it, uh, Rain Man. Rain Man was really simply something that Dustin wanted to do for a long, long time. And Dustin is very smart. He knew that it wouldn't hurt to have Tom Cruise, and he was friendly with Tom Cruise, and that was <coughs> Dustin's accomplishment, getting the two of them interested together. The fact that after Pollock and a, a number of people turned it down, that it's happened to go to an Ovid's director. It could have gone to an un-Ovid's director. It did go to some un-Ovid's directors who turned it down. So I think that thing is an illusion. I'm curious to know when you've decided to direct a movie and you've read the script, how close, once you start to shoot the picture, do you work with the writer? The oh, very close for a very long time. It changes a lot. I sort of don't believe in, in directors taking screenwriting credit, but I, to varying extents, have always been part of writing the screenplay. Um, and in the case of postcards, I would say it was about, well, I, I, as I told you, I don't like to assign percentages or, or say this was mine and that was yours, but I did a lo we did a lot of it together. And I always have the, the writer on the set for several reasons. One is that things are always shifting and changing, and it's necessary to be able to say to the writer, this doesn't work anymore because she's now doing so-and-so. Let's work on something where it stops here and you have a new line. You're doing that all the time that you're shooting. There are always immediate changes. You might shoot something with, with certain, a certain dialogue and then change it uh, right on the spot. Yeah, so, so you might rehearse it and change, you change it in rehearsal. 
if you want to change it yourself or the actors improvising, it's nice. It's polite to say to the writer, is that okay with you? Um, it, that's the, the most wonderful part of a movie is that it's constantly changing as you rehearse it, as you shoot it, as you cut it. And, and it's nice if the writer is there to make the adjustments just as the rest of you are. Uh, earlier this evening, you said that you, it would be wrong, I'm paraphrasing you badly, but that it would be wrong to tell actors what to do. You do, quote, other things. Could you talk to us about those other things? <laughs> well, some of them. <laughs> the whole job is, is really to help them experience the circumstances of what, what you're shooting as though it was really happening. Some people, Dustin, for one, is a believer in really shocking and startling the actor, the other actor, as a gift when he's off camera so that real things will happen. And people shoot off guns and drop trap doors and pinch people and I tend to think that, that that's slightly demeaning the actor to assume that he doesn't know how to do that without our shocking him and startling him. Merrill said this great thing to Cher when we were making what was Cher's first movie. She said, you should be working harder in my close-up than in your own, which is exactly right. As Stanislavski said that if you feel very self-conscious, concentrate on the other actor and an actor coming out of a scene or coming off stage that says, you were great tonight, was good. Because he was thinking about the other actor, not himself. So I will do any one of a thousand things to interest the actor in the other actor, in what's happening. And Meryl and I have a code, things that we can say to each other. Sometimes I'll be... 60 feet away at the monitor, and when I get 30 feet close to her, she'll say, I know. <laughs> and then I just go back. <laughs> or I'll say, in Silkwood, she reminded me once that I said uh, she was supposed to be mad at the union head. And we did one take, and I said, more high school. She said, I know, okay. And she knew it meant just to be a little bit more like when you're a part of the student council and, and you're puffing yourself up and you're making a big fuss about being parliamentary. But all I had to say was more high school. The main thing you do, the most important thing, maybe the only thing you do, is you give them physical tasks go here, pick this up, put that down, put this on, eat this, and go out that door. And if you've laid down the tracks correctly, then they will do those things and the scene must happen to them. That's what blocking a play is. A play is all about where everybody is in, on the stage. That's a director's job. If I have people in all the right places on the stage, the play will happen. And if I don't, it won't. And in a whole other physical way, that's true in a movie. If they are doing the right things, then one, the story will be told. Two, they will feel the right things. 
and three, they will express the right things. My job is to choose the things that they will do. Uh, one example is the scene you saw with Marilyn Shirley on the stairs. That scene was written first, let me just think. It was written while Meryl was dressing upstairs and come home from being out all night, took a shower and was dressing. And then I said, way early in rehearsal, I said, no, let's do something in the kitchen first. Let's have them meet in the kitchen. Maybe Shirley could be making some. Oh, it's a scene you didn't see, I forgot. She's making herself some sort of health drink. And she makes it, and she makes it, and she makes it, and she tells Meryl her managers run off with her money. And then I said, oh, I know what we can do. At the end, when Meryl's walked out, why don't you put some vodka in the health drink? So she does that. Then we had the rest of the scene upstairs while Meryl was dressing after her shower. And we rehearsed it, and we were ready to shoot it. And I said, this is a, I don't like this. It doesn't belong up here. Let's skip the dressing, which is boring. And let's have Meryl on the stairs. Let's have her going downstairs. And Shirley confronts her on the stairs. And let's play the scene, in fact, on the stairs. I got all excited thinking about it. And they said, yeah, good, we'll do that. And then when we were rehearsing it, I said, okay, this will work. But if we're going to do this, when Meryl says, you don't want me to be a singer, Mother. You're the singer. You're the performer. I can't possibly compete with you. What if somebody would win? Why, Shirley, why don't you go upstairs? Why don't we end it here? You're so pissed off that you're going to leave, and you go up the stairs, and you turn, and you say, you're jealous because I can drink, and, you, and so forth. So that's how we then blocked it. So I have now put them on a track in which what, in my view, must happen, must happen. Now we shoot it, and Meryl starts to fall down the stairs. She just does. And being Meryl, she says, shh, and goes on. So now that's the beginning of the scene. So it's a combination of me getting lucky in what I think of in the last minute and God helping Meryl fall down the stairs. <laughs> And that the camera is rolling when it happens. And when it's all over, I say, by God, think of this. Classic mother-daughter fights are always on the stairs. There's the, there's the little foxes. There's Mildred Pierce. And I thought, this is an honorable convention, and we didn't even know it. We just, <laughs> we were sucked into the mother-daughter staircase mainstream. <laughs> And that's, that's the job, really. Those are the other things. In teaching uh, class now, have you learned a lot from your students from the process of teaching? I've learned more than I've learned in all the years that I have been studying this thing. It's, it's the most revivifying and enjoyable thing I've done for many years. I love it. And it, yes, I've, lear I've learned more from that class, certainly more than they have. <laughs> but, but also they've learned a lot. We're learning together in a fairly Socratic way. And it is, it's amazing and exciting. It's thrilling to me that, that these ideas 
these practical ideas are practical, that there are certain things you can do. And it, it's how you learn, is to do it, to teach it. Your approaches in the theater, are they similar or very different? When you're directing someone like Sigourney Weaver in both theater and movie, is there a change in approach on your part? It is very different. It's very different in that, aside from physical things, like what I said, that a play is about where everybody is, a play, after all, you see everybody all the time. It's the best and the worst thing about it. It's why there can be no good Chekhov movie, really. Because you have to see all the characters all the time. That's what it's about. It's about everybody, including the governess, all the way upstage that nobody ever talks to. If you cut to Arkadina, or whoever, I mean the, the other one, cut to the main character, and you leave out the governess, then you're not telling Chekhov's story, and so forth and so on. So they are very, very different, and for the actor they're very different, because it's a little bit like the difference between improvising and being an opera singer. Because an opera singer is all conscious technique. And if it's a, if it's a great opera singer, after the conscious technique, after the breath placement and the diaphragm pushing and the learning of the, the head tone and learning the score and so forth, if they are great, they can animate it and fill it up and, again, burn off all the technique through their talent, inspiration, truthfulness. But it comes last. Now, the joke about acting on stage is that it's the same thing. It's as hard... Nobody shows up for an opera and says, could I try? You know, I, th I have a feeling I could do Casta Diva. Let me try. <laughs> <laughs> and yet, that's how people approach stage acting. It's completely impossible, because it is exactly as technically complex as opera singing, and then you have to hide all the technique and burn it away. That's different from movie acting. Movie acting, yes, there's a lot of technique. You have to hit your marks. You can't look into the camera. You have to do things, as you know, exactly the same physically so that the editor can match you from take to take, and in the other person's shot, and so forth. It's also very technical. But it only has to happen once. So that, yes, Dustin can stamp on your foot out of frame. And you go, ah, it happened once. It's real. You were acting. It's wonderful. You don't have to do it again. In, in a play, everything is done over and over and over. So the approach is completely different. Physically, what the director does is completely different. And finally, the reason, there's two reasons I think that I love movies at the moment more than the theater. One is that the release from consecutive time is joyful to me. I find it very hard to see a play because, you know, you say, oh, there's two more to come. And then, and then finally you say, oh, that's the last actor, this is it. Nothing else can happen now. We're all here together till they're finished talking. <laughs> no. I, I'm not going to be anywhere else. I'm not going to... That's all that's going to happen. And it has to be pretty good. 
to get me over that depression <laughs> about consecutive time. And it can be. I mean, Merchant of Venice made us very happy, and we argued for a long time with the kids. And It's amazing that a play could still shock you after such a long time and be about things that are happening right now. But it's rare. I ha also have a problem with, with Broadway at the moment, and just the nature of it. It, it seems to me a cynical transaction on everybody's part. And I, I would like to see it blown apart a little bit and to have some of the life that, that you can have in a, even in New York in a small theater. There's something about the Broadway experience. I don't like to go be in that audience. I don't like putting on plays for that audience. And I am that audience also. And you get exactly the audience that you've earned. And that's almost the worst thing about doing a play on Broadway, is you think, is this what I've earned? And I go to the Brooklyn Academy and I say, this is what I want. Give me these heroes of the left in burlap ties. You know, and the ladies with the hand-hammered silver jewelry and the suede dress that only goes to the Brooklyn Academy, we can't, I can't get her on Broadway. It's because nobody trusts Broadway anymore, rightly. Over and over, your friends lie to you. They say, we, you'll like this. You really will. <laughs> and $200 later, you're sitting there saying, shipped again, damn it. How could they do that to me? Why do I believe people? Doesn't that happen to you on Broadway? But it, it, it's nice, the theater, because the worse it gets, the better it gets, because the pendulum is just swinging the other way. At the moment, I think movies are much closer to what we all feel like. It'll change again. Call on this list. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> do you think that your career in stand-up comedy, do you think it could happen now? Because I think the entertainment world was a much different place then than it is now, and maybe it's not as encouraging. I don't know, were you encouraged? I, yes, I was encouraged. Everybody was... It's a, a very interesting question that you ask. I guess I think, yes, it could happen now. Well, I'll give you an example. First of all, there's, there's Steven Soderbergh. You see that movie, and that's it. That's all. You think, here he is. How can you possibly do this at 26? It's horrifying if you're a director, because it shouldn't be possible. But it's this perfect and brilliant movie. Or th this movie that I'm making with Harrison Ford, the writer of the movie is 22. And I want to tell you, it's a brilliant screenplay. Harrison sent it to me. He said, I think this is the most exciting thing I've read in five years. And me too. And this is a kid that, was, that worked for Steven Spielberg, running tape cassettes for him starting at 14. And he wrote this quite remarkable script at 22. And it, I think it's all possible, how, wherever you come from. I think that, I mean, I have a kid that's an actress. Yes, she was exposed, obviously. I mean, most kids, you know, don't have Milos Forman come to the house and say, would you like to be in a movie when they're three? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but nevertheless, I got to see her in the movies. She was, she was in uh, Crimes and Misdemeanors. I never had anything to do with this. I never talked to anybody about it. Woody Allen, who knows her 
because her best friend is Mia Farrow's kid, Woody Allen wrote a part for her. And then I said to her, what do you think of it? And she said, well, I didn't like the first scene so much, but in the rest of it, I pretty much did what I wanted to do. And then she went back to school and didn't think about it anymore. I'm not saying that it's as easy as it is for a kid of mine, but I am saying that the guy that wrote the picture I'm going to do, or Steven Soderbergh, he was simply talented. And if you're talented, I think there's about a 70-30 chance that you'll be okay. At what point uh, in your relationship with Miss May did you decide to become a director? And how hard was it to get your first directing assignment? I never decided to do anything is the main thing about this, all this strange uh, lifetime. Well, what happened was that Elaine and I, she wanted to stop doing our act. It was very painful for her. It was not for me. I kept saying, why is it so painful? It's two hours out of 24. You know, you go to the theater, you say the same things you say every night, you go, but you're home by 10.30. You know. <laughs> But she somehow, I think she gave more and used more of herself than I did by far. And it was genuinely painful for her. So she said, let's not do this anymore. I said, fine, that's all right. I wonder what I'll do. <laughs> <laughs> and a producer I knew suggested that I try directing a play. And I read it and I said, oh, let's try it in summer stock. It was Barefoot in the Park. And... In the first half hour of rehearsal, I thought, oh, look at this. This is what I was meant to do. This is what I have been preparing for all this time. I just didn't know it. And that's how I experience all this stuff. Shouldn't we stop? <laughs> okay, well. <laughs> You've got to get all the way back to Manhattan. <laughs> okay. Thank you for listening. The Pinewood Dialogues at Museum of the Moving Image are made possible by generous support from the Pannonia Foundation. To learn more about the museum, visit www.movingimage.us.